Welcome to Nell and Matt's Obsolete Movies, the podcast where we revisit movies from our 20 plus years of collecting films on obsolete formats. You can think of this podcast as being about films from the VHS era, though we don't necessarily watch them on VHS. <laughs> However, our film for this episode is Groundhog Day, because it is Groundhog Day. <laughs> From 1993, and we have it on VHS, getting it from... I might have scored it at a Goodwill, maybe? Maybe. I don't know where this one came from. I usually am better at that, but I think Goodwill? Anyway. Uh, Groundhog Day. Those of you who don't... I mean, this is the easiest plot summer ever. Bill Murray plays a jerky weatherman. He goes to Punxsutawney to cover the groundhog. And then gets trapped in Groundhog Day for days and days and years and years and years until he finally um, captures the love of his life. And then it's February 3rd. <laughs> and that's the plot. And most, by now, most people should know Groundhog Day. Right? Most people should know Groundhog I mean, Groundhog Day is one of those films like the shower scene in Psycho. Like, you don't have to see the Psycho to know, shing, 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 and a shower, and you know, oh, yeah, Psycho, yeah, I know about that. I haven't seen it, but I know it. I think at this point, Groundhog Day has become one of those films That's that in the zeitgeist. That it's is. in the zeitgeist. It's in the pop culture DNA. I mean, I'm even just sort of looking at the list of films that we've done for this podcast this might be the most this might be the most popular one and well-known one yeah absolutely. and well-known one unless we do like ghostbusters or star wars or something but as of to date this would be our most popular one maybe and, and it's 30 years old it was released in 1993 yes on february 4th 1993 and now it's february 2nd 2023 <laughs> so 30 wow it's been 30 in, years of groundhog day it's been in existence for 30 years yeah which is amazing it is amazing and it still hits though like it still, still works and i think we have to talk about that because you know one of the things we have on our sheet is sort of like the critical reception of the time we sometimes look at that I think people thought this movie was okay. Yeah. When it came out and how it has gone from being it's okay. It was an okay movie. Bill Murray was all right in that, you know. Yeah. To now, yes, this thing that is absolutely zeitgeist pop culture DNA. Yeah. Um it's a metaphor that people use. Yeah. To describe monotony. I think Groundhog Day took on new meaning during the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and I think I think even Roger Ebert reassessed it and, and gave it four stars. Um, you know, years later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, we all went through our Groundhog Day in twenty twenty, right, where we felt like we were living our lives again and again and again. Yes. But, you know, there had been like this history of naming fil films based on a holiday, right? So like Halloween, uh, my birthday party, April Fool's Day, Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th, um, Christmas Evil, right? Yeah. Uh, Groundhog Day. So there was like that tradition of just like, oh, it's going to be named after a holiday. People will watch it. It doesn't have to be great because it's named after a holiday. And I think, you know, I remember seeing this the first time and yeah, you're just like, okay, it's kind of silly film 
few laughs. That's about it. But it's in the rewatching of it that you grow to appreciate it. And also, being, what, 93, we would have been still in high school. Yes. And something that you watch as a teenager feels different when you watch it in your 20s, your 30s, and now for us in our 40s, right? And so yeah. I think that's also the thing is that as you grow and mature, I think you view the film in different In light. different ways. I, I think... I think there's absolutely that's a key part of it. I mean, for me, it's like I, I had not seen Fellini's Eight and a Half until I was in my 30s. Yeah. There's no way I would have understood that movie before my 30s. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And there's just certain texts that are like that. And I yeah. say text, I mean, in the true sort of post-structural academic way, everything is a text. Yeah. Everything can be read like you read a novel. Right. Or do film studies on. It just happens to be we're talking about a film. So uh, there are just certain things that you don't get when you're young that make sense now. Yeah. Um, I think, and we'll, I think, touch on this later in the podcast when it comes to the social political distance. Yeah. While it is a very white world of Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, which Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania is a very white world. Yeah. Um, there's not, a, there's not cringe humor. There's not something like, oh, you wouldn't tell that joke right. today. Ooh. I mean, so it just happens to skirt above that. But the thing I really want to talk about is revisiting the film this time. I'm just so happened to be teaching fiction this semester, fiction writing workshop. Yeah. And we just so happened had our class in two, on Tuesday about plot. Mm. And we've been spending this week talking about plot. And I think one of the things this film does so well, in spite of the fact that it has this premise where everything is on repeat, yeah, there is a, a way in which this, pl this plot is actually very traditional. Mm-hmm. And very well thought out in that the Bill Murray, Phil Connors character, the way that his journey sort of escalates mm -hmm. and the way that they thought out his character development yeah. so that he goes through almost sort of every logical stage Yeah, that, you know, he would, if this was the case where you realized that no matter what you do, you end up in the same spot. Yeah. So he immediately goes out and gets drunk and gets arrested. Yeah. Drives <laughs> you know, on train tracks. Drives on the train tracks, you know, steals from the armored car. Yeah. That, you know, to be the 12-year-old left alone for the first time is going to eat all the ice cream and give themselves a tummy ache. So he does the hedonist side of it, right? He it does the hedonist he first. First, yeah. Which I think would be, you know, I, I, I it's all logic. He goes from the, this hedonism to, you know, and he indulges all of the, you know, pleasures of the flesh. Right. Um, he tries to pursue Rita <laughs> He the tries first to time. get through all the seven sins as much as possible. Seven deadly sins as much as possible, yeah. yes. And then goes to this sort of, this almost like sort of suicidal despair. Yeah, this nihilistic phase. That there is no way out. Yeah. To then, to finally... Well, believing he's God. Believing he's God. Yeah. 
And then this, well, I'm just going to get better at being me and I'm going to learn lots of stuff and become wise and help people, even though it doesn't mean as much, like nothing still means anything. Yeah. But he's good to other people. Yeah. And learns what could go wrong at Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania on February 2nd and then spends a day fixing it. Mm. And he learns piano. <laughs> you know, and, and so... That to me is, it's a weird say. It's it it's so well thought out that that character would go from one place to another like yeah. that, and the order of those stages is kind of log is really logical. Yes, which I think helps with the way in which we identify with that movie and does again a traditional sort of you know conflict rising action resolution denouement like it does that but it does it under the auspices of the he's living the same day over and over again i also think hey they do a really great job of his character reactions at each of those stages yes which are amazing and for him to do some of the same scenes like six seven eight times and have a different reaction yes each time is amazing which the other thing we have to talk about is the New York Times did the article a few years ago about how tense the set was and how yeah. miserable everyone was. And of course, uh, Bill Murray and Harold Ramis really didn't speak again until Harold Ramis was dying. I mean, it ruined a, a friendship. It ruined that they, friendship. They did Stripes together, ground, uh, uh, a Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters. Like they did a bunch of bunch of films, films together. together. And yeah, they didn't really speak anymore. And it was this really miserable time. It was very cold. They did shoot so many scenes outside in February. Yeah. Um, yeah. And Bill Murray, the tension of realizing I'm playing the same, same scene over and over again, but I have to play it differently and have to think about, well, how's this character going to experience this scene years later? Right. Um, also, stuff like this, the Ned Ryerson scene. Uh, there's a number of takes, I guess, where like that puddle was really cold when Bill Murray stepped in that puddle, and that he would feel pain and wince. Says, "Oh, you can't wince. We got to do it again, and have to get dry." And I guess one of the cars in the background started stalling out and kept breaking down, mm. and that would, you know, they kept having to reset all of that action, and so it was, yeah. <clears throat> Quite quite a miserable movie to make. Right. But, yeah, Bill Murray pulled pulled off. And I also think they had philosophical differences around it, right? Yeah. So, and I think Bill Murray uh, didn't want your traditional, like, romantic comedy type of film where love triumphs. I think he was really appreciated the more philosophical aspects yeah. of it. And I think they also had this disagreement around the trajectory of the film, yeah. which I think, you know, at this point in time, when you look at all the films prior to that, the vast majority are these just broad comedies that he was known for. And it would be kind of after Groundhog Day where he, Bill Murray starts getting different types of roles, right? And yes. And it makes roles. this other move of yeah. doing serious Serious but weird, weird, weird but serious drama. I yeah. mean, you know, he's the stock Wes Anderson go-to kind of character. Yeah, movies like Broken Flowers. Yes, yeah, Lost in Translation. Lost in Translation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he starts doing these very interesting films. So you also have to wonder, 
were they at a crossroads professionally where Bill Murray was ready for a more... Ready to not make Saturday Night Live movies anymore. Right, and and Harold Ramis, that's his bread and butter, right? Yeah. Because even for then, like, Harold Ramis, he still kind of doesn't necessarily have a prestige film. Like, Groundhog Day is probably his best film that he that he did of yes. his of his oeuvre. Where for Bill Murray, it actually was a career changer Yes, for him. Yeah. And so this movie has found its way into the, the, the canon, if you will, of American yeah. cinema. It is also, you think, it is a very... In this one way that he finally chooses to be good. Now, granted, he perhaps exhausts all other options. (laughs) But in a truly Catholic sense of choosing goodness out of free will. Yeah. This movie does that. Yeah. You know? Because he doesn't ever have to be good, ever. And he also doesn't... I would think that if it was me, if I was stuck in that situation... I would probably take a step back every now and then. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I would just spend a day. I could learn piano today or, you know, pig out at the diner. Yeah. I'll pig out at the diner today. And, and, <laughs> and I'll always have time tomorrow to do the piano. Right. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Also, I should mention, Bill Murray got bit by the groundhog. Oh, that's true. I forgot about that. And you, you found a continuity error. Of that yes, well, after watching this movie for the... I mean, we've probably watched Groundhog Day every February 2nd for at least the last 10 years. Yes. And there is every once in a while it will come on and be on cable or something. And and go, oh, Groundhog Day is on. Well, well we're just going to watch it. Groundhog Day again. And I finally realized they shot part of the sequence with the red pickup truck out of order. So the scene where he bursts through the gates, the front grill of the pickup truck breaks, and then the next scene, the grill is together. And it only took me like 12 to 20 (laughs) times of watching the film, which I think also says something about how well it was written, how efficient this story that tells the story of perhaps... There's one estimate out there online that maybe 30 years for him to learn everything that he learns by the end of the film. Yeah. That over the course of, you know, you tell the cor- the story of 30 years in 101 minutes. Yeah. Which, you know, we're now in the era where, you know, how many films blow well past two hours, push three hours. Yeah. And don't tell a story that is as complete or as satisfying as Groundhog Day. And they're they're like so smart about it too because they just kind of give you glimpses of each of his stage. Yes. So you but then you have to kind of piece it together like oh for him to become an ice sculptor how long would it take someone to become an ice sculptor? Oh no, ice sculptor. How many days does it take to become a piano virtuoso? Right. How many days does it take to teach yourself how to speak French? Right. How many days? Yeah. Yeah. And so with that, they do such a nice job at, at his different phases of just giving you a glimpse and not lingering yeah. too in-depth into any of the stages, but just letting you know that there's these stages that are, are happening with it. And that he um, ultimately reaches a point of wanting to self-actualize right is what we yes. think about it so you think yeah, about if you like, go maslow yeah. yeah if you go maslow he he goes to food security food relationships 
self-improvement and then self-actualization is what he's trying to achieve. Yeah. Um, and then kind of once he starts focusing, I think he comes to a realization that Rita, he can't trick Rita into He does sleeping. try to woo Rita in the most superficial ways. As possible. And for him, it, it becomes just a checklist. Oh, she likes... Oh, she doesn't like white chocolate. Oh, she doesn't like fudge. She likes Rocky Road. And he thinks that what, that's what love is, that I bought you. The thing that you want. want. Um, and there's a scene where he tries to get her into bed early on in the film. He tries to sleep with her. And she's wanting to leave. And he says, I love you. And she's like, you don't know me. And because though he's tried to woo her. Many times. Many times. And he actually knows her, like at least superficially, Knows her likes and dislikes. Knows that she studied French poetry. Um, he thinks because he got a rocky road that she'll spend the night with him. And that's yeah. enough. Uh, but he does it to a woman in, in, in an earlier scene where he's like, I've always loved you. Let's get married to get her to, to sleep with him. Yeah. And so um, he isn't willing to put in any work into that relationship beyond the checklist yes. and once he realizes that's not going to work he decides to kind of self-actualize himself and improve himself because he has all the time in the world and as we know from covid <laughs> mm -hmm. some of us learned to make a sourdough starter and bake bread and some of us uh got into to sweatpants and t-shirts and just hibernated during that time yeah um, but he gets to the point where he decides to do something productive with that time yeah, absolutely. And then the other way of thinking about it, I, I think to pick, circle back to something you said about how, you know, we get these snapshots. I'm also teaching poetry writing workshop this semester and that economy of language. Yeah. And that the economy of language and the sparseness of words that still invokes a full mental picture and a full window into a reality. And... Yeah, I think this movie is so well written and so well edited that it's just the most basic thing you can be into with a movie. It's really good writing. I No, absolutely. And I feel like, you know, when you first start the film, Phil is not a likable character. He is definitely not likable. And he he's, he's a chauvinist. He's a narcissist. Um, he's egotistical. He just, he really, really, really likes himself. Yes. Uh, and it's hard to care for him. Yes. And so when he first falls into the time loop, you're just like, okay, whatever. But as he grows as a person, you actually start to feel for him. And you're like, yes. oh, like, I'm happy that he, he's experienced this or he's doing this now or he's becoming this person. So when the time loop finally ends, you actually are so happy yes. for him that the time loop ends and i also lo love they they never tell you why the time loop starts um which is yes. also pretty amazing and i i've read somewhere that um one of the potential reasons for the time loop was a curse by a witch which is like beauty and the beast that's what happens to the beast he's a narcissist and is cursed cursed by a witch to become a beast until a woman can love him and so that's one of them was like he was supposed to be cursed by a witch and how hard i like i feel like that would have changed the tone of the film if it was a curse on him? Well, I think, again, it's just to go back, I'm, I'm just going to hearken on, since I've been doing all of this work with my students building a vocabulary for close reading for the craft of writing. 
the fact that this whole scenario is so implausible, mm-hmm. but yet they do all this work that you just... There's all these other smart things that are happening in the film that maybe you don't have time for it to, to, to think about plausibility. Right. I mean, that is for Reddit conspiracy theory forum <laughs> threads. Yeah. Right, right. That you can get to that after you've seen the movie 20 times. Yeah. But... To just enjoy it as a film, okay, and it's conceit, but then yeah. all of these other smart, character-driven, character development things happen. Yeah. For Phil Connors is fantastic. And also, to be honest with you, if we fell into a time loop, will we know why we fall into a time loop? No. Um, and you just kind of fall into it, and you try to figure out how to get out of it, and that's kind of it. Or you realize you don't know how to get out of it, and you just... You know, try to live the best day you can. Yeah. This is true. <laughs> the other thing I want to talk about before we, we move on to the four big questions is also the fact that we are in Western Pennsylvania. We live we have, not too far from Puxatawney. We, yes, yeah, so we live in Pittsburgh, which is where Phil Connors is a weather person for a fictional, there is no Channel 9 Pittsburgh, for those of you who might be listening and don't live here. And he takes the wrong road to get to And us. yes, this bothers me so much. <laughs> you do not take that road that they take that goes to downtown Pittsburgh towards the point to get to Punxsutawney. No. Unless maybe you're taking 28 through Indiana, which not that's not how I'd do it. I would take 22 to 119 to get right. to Punxsutawney. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying. There's better ways to get to Punxsutawney than the way they take. And that takes me out of the film a little bit. But also our avowed love for rural um, western Pennsylvania. Absolutely. We're, we are huge fans of rural Pennsylvania. Yeah. So at least driving through and visiting it, I don't know if I'd want to live there. Yeah. But. Actually, it doesn't look like the film, though. So not to It doesn't look like the, the film. film. Puxatawney. I will say, now think, having been to Puxatawney a few times, um, the move the town ta- Woodstock, Illinois, is way more photogenic than the town of Punxsutawney. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely be disappointed because you're not gonna. To Which see. is funny. We have a very good friend who we went to. There's a great sort of record store in a flea market in this uh, repurposed factory in Punxsutawney. And I was like, let's go, they're open, and let's go buy records. And he's like, great, and I love Groundhog Day. And I was like, do you realize they shot like two scenes? Actually, <laughs> he's like, what? And I was like, yeah, it doesn't look anything like that. And he, like, he lived his entire life in Western Pennsylvania, and is about or a little younger than us, but about our age, and had never been to Punxsutawney. And I was like, you're not going to yeah. see anything from the movie. <laughs> which is a, a disappointment. Fr- which is a disappointment. <laughs> Um, and I guess, you know, there are some people in Punxsutawney who resent the film, both because it's not, it wasn't shot in Punxsutawney and also makes people in Punxsutawney kind of as come off like country bumpkins and simpletons. Yeah. Which, you know, the, the rural-urban divide is a real thing. Which is why I wouldn't want to live in, in, honestly, in Punxsutawney. You know, rural America and a lot of places, and certainly rural America in Pennsylvania, has since lost its mind. Yeah. In 1993, and certainly when we were living in rural 
Western Pennsylvania in the late 90s. Yes, it could be a little backwards. Yes, it could be a little sheltered, but it wasn't mean. Right. And now sometimes those parts of the state are, are now mean. Yes. And so I remember... So it does make me nostalgic for Pennsylvania, even though it's not shot in <laughs> Pennsylvania. And honestly, I even felt differently about the movie when Tom Corbett was governor yeah. of Pennsylvania. And Pennsylvania felt like a very different state. Yeah, this is true. This is you absolutely know. true. Yeah. So, I guess it's time for the four big questions. Yeah. Uh, is it... Camp retro classic or just an old movie? Uh, it's a classic for me. Absolutely. Um, I love this film. I just, uh, there's just a lot of joy in watching the film every year. I usually cry every time we watch it because uh, it's just, there's parts that always hit me in, in mm. an emotional way. Uh, but it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful film and it's for me, it's definitely a classic. Two... Question two, then. Uh, I, I say classic as well, by the way. Uh, goes without saying. Two, what about the social political distance? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I mean, like, the problem often with revisiting films from the VHS era is there's sometimes an ookiness factor, right? Yes, there's a, joke, a, there's a joke that's punching down. Yeah. And that punches down towards a, a marginalized group. Yeah. There is often behavior that we would now find sketchy, which was sort of normalized when it comes to yeah. especially sex and sexuality. You know, I mean, again, my, my classic I always bring up is, you know, the sexual assault in the hero's sexual assault of a, a sleeping woman in Dead Poet Society. Yeah. You know, he's a sympathetic character and tries to make out with a girl who's passed out on a couch. Yeah. And we just, well, yeah, whatever it says, but, you know, captain my captain. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that kind of stuff happens, and in a weird way, and maybe it's because there's so much that needs to happen in this plot of this movie yeah. that they don't have time for that. There, now, at the beginning, like, he is making sexual innuendos towards Rita and, and does, you know, try to get her to sleep with him. But she acknowledges it's gross. Like, she's like... You're, yes, you're and she gross. resists, and she stands up and says, no, I'm not, no, this yeah. isn't cool, go away. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, like, that's initially your, like, what, uh, I think it was, like, like two years ago when we watched it, I was like, oh, wait, there was some weirdness with the relationship, but she stands up for herself. And yeah, like, and no, so... This is wrong. And there's, there's, you know, no consent, and so... Yeah. There is no consent, and he, no meant no, so... And then, you know, you did mention that there is no people of color in this film, um, which, however, Western PA is not a very diverse area, to be honest with you. And so I think it just reflected the time and the place, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and it's still like that. Yeah. It's we, I mean, I have a, we have a former friend, college roommate, who his entire high school experience, he had one non-white classmate yeah for six months for half a school year yeah was the one yeah, yeah. and so i mean that's that's that re and actually uh, one of the things i also noticed is uh the population sign on the punxsutawney billboard is six thousand there's no way six thousand people live in punxsutawney anymore yeah no this is true I also mean, 
I feel like in some ways, if the movie was made now, there would be this push to have like a religious view put to it, right? Yeah, like, oh, I, you're this right. This is a Christian allegory, or this is this is based on. Well, it would have to be a Christian. I mean, you yeah. could you can make the argument there is a Buddhist sort, sort of, of yeah. Hindu thing happening in reincarnation and maybe denying desire as well um like i said the catholic thing of like free will but you're right it would be much more overt and it would have to be a bit heavy-handed right if you did it today rather than the sort of blissful secular era that we came of age in which Which was was just just, like amazing so there wasn't like and there's not a moment where he like rushes to church to get a priest to help him or or a pastor to help him which i feel today there would have you would have to do that you have to do that so like that also feels refresh refreshing for it just to be agnostic right like faith doesn't have to be a part of this person's journey and you don't necessarily need faith to have a journey, right? Yes. Like, can you grow and mature as an adult without the fear of God watching over you? Yes. Right? And so I like that. Which part. also is a Sufi Muslim thing, but... That's true. That's true. <laughs> but I, I do think that's that's important to say that he's able to grow as a person because of not because of, I'm going to get punished by God mm-hmm. if I don't become a better person. All right, and so I think the technical distance... Yeah, I mean, it's set in the 90s, right? It's set in the (laughs) 90s. Um, Yeah, which I will say, though, again, one of the things that they do... uh, There's a checkbook. There's a checkbook There's a checkbook. But again, for a film that has has stunts, but no practical effects even, and definitely no CGI, is going to age better than the new Avatar movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. The new Avatar movie is going to look like crap in the 2030s. Yeah. Groundhog Day is still going to look pretty good. You're going to wonder why they don't have cell phones, but we still haven't really figured out a good way to tell a story in the uh, with cell phones in it. Yeah, right. Anyway, so... And I think the... Um we were watching a old Siskel and Ebert and they were reviewing Hocus Pocus and talked about how bad the effects were in that. And they showed a clip and you're like, oh my gosh, that CGI aged so poorly. And, yes. and that unfortunately happens where you look at... Um, the needle is always going to move. Yes. Until at some point, you know, you can just make an entire movie out of a, on a computer with no actors. My, my favorite example is Spawn. Like, if you, some of those scenes in Spawn, you look at them now and you're like, whoa. Yeah. That is so, so bad. Well, um, our first episode, we did uh, Dracula, which has yeah. the, it has a toy train. It has an HO yeah. scale toy train in it. And when you yeah. watch it now and you watch it on a big screen in a, a classroom that I watched it in recently. My students wanted to see it. Um, that's a train. That's a toy train. Yeah. That's an HO scale train. There's no way around it. But but I think, you know, definitely you know it's set in a different time because there's no cell phones. The cars are older. There's yes. a TV. The, the camera is, like, massive for the video camera that they're yeah. using is massive. So you can, you definitely can tell that it's a different time. But it doesn't take away from the film, right? No. Like, it still feels that... It still has a quality... Like, even watching it today, I was like, this still... It's still this, good, it's basic still good. storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess then the the answer, which is quite obvious for question <laughs> four, will we watch it again? Yeah, we're watching it next year. And we are watching <laughs> it next year. 
And I will say, you want to hear something really funny? What? We did this for episode 30. I just looked at when I was looking at the I thought we did this I episode. thought we did, and I totally forgot. I it doesn't matter. You, I asked you, and you said we didn't do it yet. No, I didn't look at the list that closely. And then I saw it the second. I was like, oh, we did do it again. So it really is Groundhog Day. So next year, on February 2nd, we will record this podcast again. <laughs> We're caught in our own time loop of doing We are thing. caught in our own time loop. Yeah. As we do it, yeah. So we probably, we actually probably had the same, uh, brought up some of the same topics. I think our conversation this this time around was better, actually. Oh, okay. So then, then for the next time we have to, so for each time we should grow, right? So yes, we're going to see more films. And, we, and oh, we, uh, we didn't do like a hedonist phase, though, so... Oh, so that means, like, at some point we have to watch Caligula in the next year. <laughs> Basically, is what you're saying. We gotta watch Caligula in the next year, and maybe, like, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas or something. <laughs> well, so we did our own time loop, and and we did our own... Uh, we did, the we same did our own same thing again. again. Whoops. And we'll have to do it again, because we're gonna watch Groundhog Day next February 2nd anyway, so... And it's, you know what... It deserves to be watched again and again. Yeah. And talked about again and again. Yes. I think we're, that's it. That is it, everybody. Bye. Bye.